Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. Last week, the United States Senate packed up and went off on its annual August recess, but not before completing a marathon round of legislating. Yes, legislating. That included the passage of a $1 trillion infrastructure bill and a $3.5 trillion budget resolution, which together formed the beating heart of Joe Biden's domestic legislative agenda and whose fates, along with that of the American economy, the social safety net, and the Biden presidency itself, are inextricably entwined with each other and now face an uncertain future in the House of Representatives, which will return from its summer vacation on August 23rd to begin the fraught and frightfully complicated process of moving them towards becoming law or not. With all this super consequential action and more unfolding in Congress, from legislation designed to preserve and protect voting rights from an extraordinary onslaught by Republicans in states around the country, to the release last week of census data, kicking off the most consequential congressional redistricting battle in a generation, we thought it would be a good idea to bring someone on the podcast who understands how Capitol Hill really works and doesn't work often, as well as anyone I know, along with a whole lot more about politics writ large in this country, all of it from the unique perspective of a woman who spent her career in politics blazing trails and breaking down gender-based barriers, a former prosecutor in an era when crime and criminal justice policy is front and center, and a Democrat who fought the good fight in a state that was once deep purple and now looks increasingly bright red, and who also happens to have emerged in the era of at-home cable punditry as an undeniable, certifiable Room Raider all-star. Yep, you guessed it. I'm talking about Claire McCaskill. The state of our union is better, but still strained by folks who don't appreciate compromise. And the state of my state, Missouri, just sucks. Claire Connor McCaskill represented the Show Me State for two terms in the United States Senate from 2007 to 2019. A native of Rolla, Missouri, smack dab in the middle of the state, McCaskill was born to public service. Her father, as a state insurance commissioner, and her mother was the first woman elected to the city council in Columbia, Missouri. After graduating from the University of Missouri with a degree in political science and a JD from the University of Missouri Law School, McCaskill quickly dove into politics, getting herself elected to the Missouri House of Representatives in 1982, to the Jackson County Legislature in 1990, as the first woman ever to serve as Jackson County Prosecutor in 1992, as the second woman ever to serve as State Auditor of Missouri in 1998, And then after narrowly losing a race in 2004 to become the first female governor of Missouri, in 2006, she became the first woman elected to the Senate from her home state. In her 12 years in the upper chamber, McCaskill established a reputation as a serious and hardworking legislator, serving on the Senate Armed Services Committee, where she led the way in reforming the military justice system to deal with the pervasive horrors of sexual assault in the armed forces, staking out moderate positions on some issues, but unapologetically progressive ones on others, including health care and gun control and gay marriage, and becoming an early and crucial endorser of Barack Obama over Hillary Clinton in the 2008 Democratic nomination fight. But alongside McCaskill's legislative and political chops, what always appealed to me most about Claire was her bracing candor, her quick and agile mind, and her fabulous sense of humor, three qualities in short supply in our nation's capital that have served her well in her new incarnation as a political analyst for MSNBC and happily on this podcast. I wanted to hear from Claire about the state of the Senate possibility that the flash of bipartisanship we saw last week, 
though certainly remarkable, may prove to be short-lived. Her verdict on the Biden presidency so far and an array of gender-tinged issues from Andrew Cuomo's resignation to a recent report in the New York Times that despite all of the changes she championed and helped enact, the problem of sexual assault in the military is as bad or worse than ever. Claire and I got around to all of that, plus her bracing assessments of two fast-rising but highly controversial Missouri politicians, the guy who turfed her out of office, Josh Hawley, and the first-term St. Louis congresswoman and recent addition to the squad, Cori Bush. And of course, because no conversation of more than a few minutes with Claire McCaskill doesn't eventually get around to the St. Louis Cardinals, a team that I hate almost as much as Claire loves them, we also jawed for a little while about baseball, which somehow led to a discussion of Charles Barkley that ended with what has to be one of the least likely images of marital bliss you are ever going to hear, and easily the most charming ending of an episode we've ever had on Hell and High Water. This bill shows that we can work together. I know a lot of people, some sitting in the audience here, didn't think this could happen. This bill is declared dead more often than anyway. That bipartisanship was a thing of the past. From the time I announced my candidacy, Brent Paul got bringing the country together and doing things in a bipartisan way. It was characterized as a relic of an earlier age. As you may well remember, I never believed that. I still don't. That's Joe Biden right there singing uh, the song of bipartisanship uh, last week after the United States Senate passed the big infrastructure bill and its huge budget outline. We're here on Hell and High Water with Claire McCaskill, my friend, former senator from Missouri, MSNBC commentator extraordinaire, and my fellow Room Raider all-star, which is like the thing that now binds me to Claire more than anything is that we're both the object of so many people's obsessions over our respective pandemic rooms. How you doing, Claire? I'm great. You know, and if it hadn't been you, I probably wouldn't have looked to find some flowers to put in the shot. But since it was you, <laughs> yeah, we we were very competitive there for a few months. And now it's just become rote habit that we try to you place your squirrels. And I place my cakes and off we go. Yeah. I don't know if it was ever really competitive. I never, I always thought it was just fun, but I will say that like, I can never compete with you when it comes to pastries. The cake plate was your thing, right? And it still is. People still are constantly asking you about what's under the cake plate. Yeah. A year and a half later, it's still a thing. Yeah. It kind of is terrible because there's this pressure uh, to have baked goods and to have homemade baked goods. Cause you know, I don't want to be a phony about it. You right. know, I don't want to go to the store and buy stuff and put them there, especially over the last year, I've tried to get really healthy. So this juxtaposition of having to produce carbohydrates for the cake dome at the same time, I'm trying to could totally avoid carbohydrates has been one of my challenges of the pandemic. Well, thank you for raising it. First of all, are you in St. Louis right now? I'm in St. Louis now. Okay. So you're home. We, we have flowers, but no cake plate currently behind you. And this was the issue I wanted to raise, which is I have seen you justifiably proudly talking about having lost, I think, 50 pounds. 50 yeah, pounds? Right around the, 50, yeah. You put that on Twitter, so that's why I feel comfortable saying it. And so congratulations, number one. Obviously, very good for your health, and you look fantastic, but then you always look fantastic. That is the conflict that I wanted to erase, which is like, if I buy something, I'm eating it. And if I ever baked anything, I'd be eating it too. I can't understand how you can possibly bake as much fresh stuff as you bake and not just like jam it down your gullet constantly. Like as a temptation, it would be too hard for me. If I were you, I could not do it. I'm somebody my entire life, I have always tried to do the stuff that people can't do 
or typically don't do. I love a challenge. And so this is in a way been another challenge for me, but I will tell you my secret weapon in avoiding the carbohydrates is I have 11 of 14 grandchildren here in St. Louis. Ah. So there are always young people who can eat cake and cupcakes and muffins. And do eat cake and cupcakes. And do. <laughs> and, and so they are very used to having this stuff at Cece's house. And I am more than happy to watch it go in their mouth. And that's where most of it goes. I was going to say the play for me would be to like bake it and have it look great, but then put some like arsenic in it or something that I knew was yeah, there. Right. That I, that I vinegar. A little bit of vinegar. <laughs> yes, that would totally take me down. So I, I come back to our friend Joe Biden when I heard him sing, as I said, that song of bipartisanship. You were one of the people I thought of, not just because, you know, I'm sure you were on television commenting on it in real time, but you were obviously someone who not only believed in bipartisanship and believed in trying to work across the aisle, but whose time in the Senate was a time when that was harder than it had ever been in the history of the country. And it's still really hard, obviously. And I wondered what you were thinking as you saw Joe Biden you know, make this promise, which he keeps pointing out to us. He made this promise in the campaign and people doubted that he could make good on it. And then to have achieved what he's achieved, which we will note is not yet a law and is still, I would say, a fair distance from becoming a law, but it's not a non-accomplishment non to have managed to get that big giant stack of votes for a very, very large bill on a bipartisan basis in the U.S. Senate. It's been a long time since a president has been able to garner that many votes of the opposing party in the United States Senate. And so one of our fellow commentators on MSNBC said, hmm. and I quote, getting infrastructure passed is easy. No, no, it's not. Nothing is easy in a country that's as divided as we are. You know, one of the hard things about this, I had a, you know, a pretty progressive record, John. I mean, yeah. I didn't like go front street with it when I was in Missouri, because frankly, the NRA always came after me because I was against the NRA on everything. I had 100% pro-choice reproductive freedom record. I had all of the things that you're not supposed to have and win statewide in Missouri. But one of the reasons was I also emphasized other things right. when I campaigned and when I was out there. And I think the hard thing for me is when people don't realize that it's not just that we have a razor thin majority in Congress. It's that this country is divided. And our politics reflect this country. So if a country is divided, it only makes sense that if you're going to get something that's lasting through Congress, that doesn't change with a bare majority, whether it's the tax code or health insurance or spending of capital funds, you've got to work out from the middle. And that's what they did in this bill. And so nobody should be disappointed that we got a compromise through and that is big and it's the first major infrastructure bill in a long, long, long time. Now, you know, like you said, we still have bubbling up of the left versus the moderates and the right versus the moderates in both parties. But I actually believe that Pelosi can wrangle the vote she needs to get the infrastructure done. And then it remains to be seen if both Schumer and Nancy can get the moderates they need to get the 3.5, what we call soft infrastructure bill through, 3.5 right. I want to come to that in a second. And another thing I want to come to a little later is on top of the fact that the country's so divided, exacerbating the problem is that the Senate is incredibly dysfunctional. And you've been outspoken about how dysfunctional the Senate's become as an institution. So it's like the divisions in the country are what they are. So that makes it hard to govern. And then the institution itself has atrophied and become dysfunctional, I mean, in some ways, non-functional over the course of the last 20 or 30 years. 
I was on with Lawrence one night while the infrastructure bill was going through and we were both sort of looking at it and kind of giggling a little bit. Like here's the Senate, they're legislating. Like you haven't seen this in a long time, but you could actually see people doing what used to happen more frequently. And I raised Lawrence because I remember when I was a young reporter in Washington, D.C., one of my favorite sources, because he was the most brilliant senator in my time live on planet Earth was Pat Moynihan. And I used to go see Pat pretty frequently and I would sit in his Senate hideout. And at the time when the Clintons were trying to pass health care, he was constantly warning about how you couldn't try to reform a seventh of the economy on a partisan basis. He was like, it will not last. Large scale social legislation will not be durable if you pass it by 51 votes. You must get 70 or 75 votes, not because there's some inherent value to bipartisanship, but because if you're doing something that large, you must have a country behind it in a broad way or else it will just unravel and get picked apart in years hence. And I always thought it was really wise but in subsequent years, I thought he was right, number one. I thought it was wisdom, the wisdom of being brilliant and of having lived a very interesting life as Pat had. But I then, as years have passed, I've thought, man, what would Pat Moynihan say now? Because, you know, the idea of getting anything through the Senate with 75 votes, I can't even remember the last time there's been anything like that, except for non-controversial piece of legislation. And even those are often party line. So I just wonder whether, I mean, when it comes to it here, even though this bill passed the Senate with a lot of votes, are we going to see anything like this whole giant Biden agenda, the hard infrastructure piece, the social safety net piece, all of it supposedly going through together this fall. Is there any chance that there can be bipartisanship at the end? Not now, but bipartisanship in the final votes, which are the ones that really count for history. There will be bipartisanship as long as the bills stay separate. I think you will still get a big Republican vote on the infrastructure bill. Uh, I don't think you'll ever get a Republican vote on the Biden package that is going to go through reconciliation. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why the Senate has become dysfunctional. And it would be too boring for me to go into the weeds on all of them. But it has changed dramatically since I got there in 2007. I think one of the reasons it's changed dramatically is there was a decision made by Mitch McConnell when he was in the minority and Harry Reid was the majority leader under Obama that his job was to stop everything. So he started using the Senate rules in a way they'd never been used before. Just to give you an example, my first amendment that we had debated and voted on on the floor was collective bargaining for TSA, okay? That was my yeah. very first vote. I won it 61 to 59. I'll never forget that one of the Republican senators wandered over and loped his arm around my shoulder and said, that's a close vote, Claire. And I said, Senator, where I come from, that's a landslide. Those were the days that you could take a vote on something like that, and no one was requiring a cloture vote. Nobody was right. requiring a 60-vote margin. So there were lots of amendments that passed without 60 votes. Then Mitch McConnell decided he was going to use his obstructionism to make Obama look bad. And he began a very focused effort to stop nominations, to stop Obama's agenda, and then, of course, once he had that power and husbanded that power, then Harry Reid decided, OK, we're going to get rid of some of the rules and make it easier for at least Obama to get his cabinet right. and low level judges. Yeah. And that was the door that opened that now you find that everything has to have 60 votes and nominations never have to have 60 votes. So how do we get out of this trap? Well, one, the membership has to rise up against leadership and say, you can't husband all this power. 
like they do in the House. You can't write bills behind closed doors. You have to write bills in committees. And if a bill comes out of a committee with a bipartisan vote, I'm very much in favor of a rule change that it goes immediately to the floor. Now, Schumer's going to kill me for saying this because (laughs) control of the floor is the majority leader's purview. But there has to be some way that we break this logjam. And there is all kinds of filibuster reform we can do that will contribute to bipartisanship without completely blowing up bipartisanship so that if the Republicans win next year, we're not faced with a major defunding of Planned Parenthood all over the country. I want to talk about McConnell in a second, but because you raised it, we've been through this debate now in an intense way for the last seven or eight months. And we all heard what Joe Manchin has said. He's not going to blow up the filibuster, but we've also heard him suggest that he might be open to some kind of filibuster reform. So do you think there's a live prospect for that? Not the end of the filibuster, because that's not going to happen. But whether there's some ways to change it in some of the ways that you might be suggesting that hardcore moderates like Manchin and Kristen Sinema might be open to? I think that for those senators that are in jeopardy next year, and that's how you should define these people. They're not jerks. They're not terrible. These are senators that are from states that are really hard. And I think it's so hard for people to remember who are on Twitter and who are just firebrand progressives that Joe Manchin has no business in the Senate. Right. I mean, he's from a state that Trump won by, what, 40, 50 points? Yes. You know, Kirsten Sinema is the first Democrat elected from Arizona in, what, three or four decades? I forget. So, you know, if you come from a state where you understand that the people you represent are not far left, the vast majority of them are not far left, it changes the way you do your job. And it should. It should change the way you do your job. So do I think that people from hard states are willing to reform the filibuster? Absolutely. I think all of them are. Do I think they're willing to completely blow up the filibuster, which would open the door to making them be the no votes that counted? Right. on some of the stuff that they think is too extreme for their states. Right. Uh, no, that I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with you. I mean, you look at Joe Manchin. The guy obviously is a narcissist and he loves the attention. And there's a lot of things you could say that are not nice about Joe Manchin. But the truth is, just on the politics of it, it's like, guys, he's in a 70% Republican state. You know, like you could either have Joe Manchin or you could have a Republican. Those are the choices. Or someone like Joe Manchin. There's not a choice where a progressive can get elected in West Virginia, although obviously some people on Twitter will disagree with that and say, if you ran far enough to the left, you could somehow transform the whole state of West Virginia, which is obviously nuts. I want to ask you about McConnell, though, because you raised that, right? So I think from a lot of people who know a little bit about politics, and as you know, one of the things that's happened in our lives, particularly during the Trump era, is that a lot of people who never cared about politics now know just enough to be dangerous or enough to be vocal, at least. I think a lot of people out there, when you say this thing's on track, you know, there's a really complicated legislative dance that Biden, his team, Schumer and Pelosi are orchestrating here, but it's on track. The thing that a lot of people just immediately go to because they've seen it happen so many times is that somehow Mitch McConnell's lying in wait, that McConnell let this infrastructure bill go through. It's some kind of a trap and that he's somehow going to rise out of the tall grass at the last minute and somehow bring all this crashing down. And I'm putting this in the voice of Vox Populi because I think I hear it all the time. Is there is that a reasonable concern? Is there a way you can allay the fears of those who think Mitch McConnell's going to fuck us at some point? We just don't know when or how, but it's coming. Well, I think Mitch McConnell will screw with Joe Biden in many ways. Yeah. I don't think it will be on this particular infrastructure bill because he has too many Republicans. Keep in mind, Mitch McConnell has two priorities, getting power and keeping power. 
And getting power means trying to elect Republicans. Keeping power means staying as the leader of the Republican Party. And the way you do that is by taking care of your members. And if he undercut all those Republican senators that put it on the line, now, Portman's not running again, and frankly, he's never cared about undercutting Susan Collins, but Murkowski's running. There are others that are running that he really cares about that were in that group and that will run in the future, and he is not going to do that to them. The mm -hmm. fact that Biden and Schumer were able to get such a big Republican vote, I mean, that's a lot of Republicans that vote. I mean, it wasn't barely 60. I mean, yeah. it was 19 Republicans. So if he does this, if he screws that bill, then he's screwing 18 of his caucus. Right. He can't do that. Yeah. So I think he won't do it on this. He'll figure out other ways to be maniacal, <laughs> I can assure you. But I don't think it'll be on that bill. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite as, and I, this, I don't want to be too inside baseball here, but I've seen a two-term Clinton presidency, a two-term Obama presidency in my professional career and in a two-term Bush presidency. I'm not going to talk about Trump because they didn't have anything close to this, but I've never seen a president and a president's staff uh, at the highest level from Ron Klain down work as effectively with the leadership in their own party. I mean, it's a very hard thing they're doing. The combination of getting this bipartisan bill through and the giant reconciliation bill, which as you just said, there's a lot of tension around this. Moderates and, and the left are going to fight over it in the House in particular. Uh, in the end, Pelosi's going to have to say to everybody, look, guys, this is Joe Biden's legacy here. You know, you've got to suck it up and do this. But the complexity of it is very, very high. I've never seen anything as legislatively complicated as this. And I, there, I say in a neutral, nonpartisan way, their mastery of the process so far has been pretty extraordinary to watch. They're really, really working in, with incredible coordination together, just as like legislative mechanics. So I'm going to show my bias here for old people that have paid their dues. Yeah. In politics today, the most important thing you can be is have no idea what you're doing, because if you've been in politics longer than 10 minutes, that means you're horrible. But this is a really good example of where you take two leaders in the House and the Senate that have miles and miles and fathoms and fathoms of water under the bridge. And then you have a president who has the heart of a senator who understands how the process works, and a really competent chief of staff who also gets it, who have been around this. So Joe Biden understands how you reach out, how you make it about other people than yourself. And I don't think, first of all, Nancy Pelosi's gotten a lot of credit, as she should, for a whole lot of things she's gotten done during her tenure as speaker. I don't think Schumer is getting enough credit right now. Schumer is good at this. Schumer is working it constantly. I mean, this guy, I worry about him. You know, my bias is also that he's one of my dear friends and we talk a lot and he talks too much on the phone. I mean, he <laughs> shortchanges his rest of his life, including his grandson in some ways, because he is always available by phone to his members all of the members. He reaches out to them constantly. He's working it constantly. He is manic about working his caucus to stay unified and get something across the goal line. So if you're going to have something complicated, you've got the three right people to do it right now, Pelosi, Schumer, and Biden. And I think they are all looking, I mean, in both Schumer and Pelosi know that really their target for the next year is next November because they have very narrow margins and they got to build on those margins if they want Biden or someone close to Biden to have a second term. 
So the Senate goes on vacation, having done all this work and stayed up all night and had their one of their famous votaramas and they leave the building last week. The House is going to be coming back and getting back to business a little sooner. And there's been some animated discussion in certain places that you and I spend time, I would say specifically in the four or five o'clock hour on MSNBC with our friend Nicole Wallace over an issue that I think on the merits matters a lot, which is the voting rights question. And as the Senate left, there was a kind of, I think, a dawning sense for a lot of people, not necessarily that there was no way that voting rights was going to get taken up, but it's going to be a really complicated fall. Not clear that they have the votes or the political will. And this raised some questions. So I want to play better work right now down in Texas, which is right now the center stage in the voting rights uh, battle. Better work talking about what he wants Joe Biden's role to be. And then we'll talk about this on the other side. There's no one more powerful, arguably, on the planet than Joe Biden. And if he channels all that power towards getting this bill, the For the People Act, which would do everything that you just enumerated earlier, essentially save our democracy, um, then, then this will happen. And I think it would only be fitting, given his speech in Philadelphia a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, where he called what is happening in our country the single greatest attack on American democracy since the Civil War. So there's better, right? Obviously trying to encourage Joe Biden. He did give that speech in Philadelphia. Many people who care about this issue applauded it. I put myself in this category as someone who thinks that we are in the middle of this now what will be a long generations long fight over the future of American democracy and whether or not we remain one. And if you believe that and you see what's going on in all these states, including Texas, but in a lot of others, all based on the big lie, you say this is an existential fight. And I don't think there's anybody who could reasonably make the argument that it's been the centerpiece of Joe Biden's attention or focus or his determination, his creativity, his team. He gave a good speech in Philadelphia, but they've not been out on the barricades on this issue. You could argue that that's fine, that they have other priorities, but they've not been on the barricades. And I guess that's the question I want to ask you, Claire. I'm not asking you to trash Joe Biden or something, but I, I do want to ask that question. A, do you agree with what Ben O'Rourke just said and what Joe Biden said, single greatest attack on democracy since the Civil War? And if that's true, is the administration doing enough to match the president's own words on this question. This is tricky territory for me because I think some of the rhetoric around some of the voting legislation that's been proposed and passed in the states does border on hyperbole. But there is also some legislation that's passed that I do think is a fundamental danger to our democracy, particularly those pieces of legislation that toy with the idea that an elected secretary of state no longer has ultimate authority to count the votes, for example. Right. But taking Texas, for example, John, and I said this on Nicole's show the other day, we've never had drive-by voting in my state. We've mm. never had no excuse absentee voting in my state. We've never had drop boxes in my state. We've never had the mailing out of absentee ballots unless it has been formally requested by the voter. And I don't believe those kept me from getting elected for close to 40 years. And the reason I lost in 18 was not because there were people who wanted to vote who couldn't. We had a record turnout of Democratic voters in a midterm and record margins in blue parts of my state in 2018. I lost in 2018 because of two words, Donald Trump, because he was able to enthusiastically get a whole bunch of voters in red areas that had, many of them had never voted before in their lives. Whereas we, you know, we registered voters, we did all that. It's just, there's more of them than us right now in Missouri. So I want 
people to stay focused on voters' rights. I want Biden to stay focused on voters' rights. I think he will. I think our courts will continue to play a role, particularly on some of this legislation that goes so far to take away the constitutional duties of elected officials that are constitutional officers in their states. So I am confident that there will be successful lawsuits against some of this legislation. And then the other little hidden gem here is the psychological impact of what the Republicans are doing, I think will be big because people know what they're doing. They're trying to get people of color and people who are economically stressed in a position that makes it harder for them to vote. And these people aren't stupid. They know what they're doing. They know they're trying to keep them from voting. So guess what they're going to do? They're going to vote. And guess what the donors in this country are going to do? They're going to fund voter registration like they've never funded it before. They're going to fund voter protection like they've never funded it before. This may be a bold prediction, and I may be all wrong, and I'll come back on your Hmm. podcast and admit it if I am, but Hmm. I predict we have, while the Republicans will struggle with turnout because they won't have Trump, I think we will have a turnout for the ages in the midterms next year because we all know what they're up to. And I think it's time for the voters to flex their muscles. They may not be able to drop their ballot off. They may not be able to drive through, but they're still going to be able to vote. And I believe that will happen. And I think Joe Biden is trying to do a calculation. What can I get done? What can I show my voters, which not only takes in the left, but also the middle? How can I show them that I was sincere about really wanting to accomplish things? And I think he knows that it's very difficult to get everything done from Washington on our election systems. And of course, the bill that was involved here, not only did it do things like automatic voter registration, which I completely support, it also did a whole bunch around Citizens United. It did a whole bunch around how people draw congressional districts. So do I think there's a piece of voter rights that can get done? I actually do, if it's modest. And do I think that Joe Biden can use his bully pulpit to make sure our voters all show up next year, no matter what the Republicans try to do? Yeah, absolutely. And if all of that comes to pass, then I think we'll have a really successful midterm defying history for the first midterm of an incumbent president. Very heard it here first. Claire McCaskill predicting massive Democratic turnout in the midterms and the depressed Republican turnout in the midterms and all of this. Essentially, it'll all be A-OK on that front. I will say you acknowledge, Claire, the one thing that I do think is worth just saying before we take a quick break, which is I think the thing that's most worrying is not, I mean, all of this stuff is worrying as far as I'm concerned. The voter suppression, all those measures are not what we should be doing, right? We should be trying to get more people to vote and get participation up and make it possible for everybody who's legally entitled to vote to vote. But it's the stuff on the backside that's the stuff that I think worries people most, which is the question of like who controls the counting. And it's not about like who casts the votes, but who counts the votes and who's in control of that process. And that that is where you can run into some really nefarious activity or, you know, if some of these measures were in place in 2020, we might have President Trump still in 2021. So big fights to have. I'm going to take a break and come back and take a little tiny little trip down memory lane with Claire McCaskill here on Hell on High Water, Claire McCaskill with her cake. And we are back for part two of Hell and High Water with my friend, former Missouri Senator, MSNBC goddess, political <laughs> savant, <laughs> Claire McCaskill. Uh, she's become a she's, she's become it's a little much, but she's become an iconic political commentator by taking her seat in the cable wars. 
but really not that long ago, back in 1995, just a humble county prosecutor. I want to play this little sound. Claire McCaskill, county prosecutor from Jackson County, Jackson County, right? Kansas City, um, yeah. Talking about crime in the context of <laughs> Joe Biden's crime bill. Let's listen to this a younger Claire McCaskill at work. As a local prosecutor, I understand every day that there is no silver bullet to the crime problem in this country. What the Republicans don't seem to understand is just more police and prisons will not get the job done. We have to have a comprehensive approach, and Congress listened to the professionals of local law enforcement when they enacted that comprehensive approach last fall. For Congress to step back from its responsibility at this point would be a cruel hoax on this country. Those of us who must face the violence every day would urge the Republicans to realize that to be short-sighted now is risking our children's safety, our family's safety, and it's very important that we remain committed to this comprehensive approach. So you were talking about Joe Biden's crime bill, now a hugely controversial thing in many quarters of the Democratic Party. I think a panel somehow got convened by Governor Carnahan at the time, and you were on the rise, Claire. Because of your background, which, you know, you're a lawyer and you were a prosecutor, crime and various dimensions of crime and law enforcement were a big part of your political career. And obviously crime is now a very hot issue in our politics. Republicans see it as a way of beating Democrats by trying to paint them with the deep on the police brush. I just want you to talk about how that issue evolved, because I do want to talk about your history here. You know, in the course of your career, how the issue of crime evolved and how the posture towards crime of the Democratic Party has changed over time and what you make of it. Because when the crime bill was passed in 1994, it was not seen as obviously as a retrograde or right wing thing. Now, obviously, much of the Democratic progressive base thinks it is. And yet now we're having more discussions about putting more cops back on the beat in the Senate just last week. So give us give me an overview of that issue and the politics of it. Well, keep in mind that I was the elected prosecutor in Kansas City. I ran the largest prosecutor's office in the state, and we handled about 10,000 felonies a year. And we were having record violent crime in the early 90s, mostly because of crack and meth and other really serious ingrained drug problems that brought about all kinds of associated violence. But at the same time, I was much different than most prosecutors in that I got it that there was low-level drug offenses that should not go in prison. And so one of the things I worked with, and that's when I first began my treks to Washington, was establishing a drug court. I was the first prosecutor involved, other than Janet Reno, in actually moving a drug court to the front of my community and starting a drug court and figuring out that low-level people who have only committed nonviolent crimes because of drugs, we shouldn't waste prison space on them. So I think I have a pretty grounded and varied background in law enforcement. And I understand that more police officers don't necessarily mean more people in prison if you do it right. And one of the things I think the crime bill has gotten a really bad rap on, people forget what else was in there. I mean, the violence against women stuff was in there. We were able to do a victim advocacy unit for the first time with federal money for that bill. The community policing was huge. Not only did we do community policing, we expanded it to community prosecutors. So what happened in neighborhoods that were riddled with lots of crime, you had a prosecutor and police officers that came to your neighborhood meetings that came and knocked on your door and said, what's going on? What can we help with? That shepherded cases through the system that came from those communities and stayed in contact with people in those communities, that built trust in those communities. That's what we need to be focused on, not just a black or white 
police are bad or police are good. There are bad police officers. We've all seen it. Now with videos on every phone, we're going to continue to find the bad police officers much more effectively than we ever have before. And that is a really good thing. And we need to get them out and we need to send them to prison like we did with the tragedy that occurred. And that's all good. But the people in these neighborhoods, I mean, I'll never forget a meeting I had with a mother who told me the hardest thing for her to decide every night was which child slept in the bathtub because she knew if they were in the bathtub, they would be safe from a drive-by shooting. So every night she did a Sophie's Choice about which of her children she put in her bathtub to sleep because she knew they would be safe there. No one should have to live like that in this country. And so you can't short shrift the law enforcement, get people who are killing people off the streets, put them away. You can't short shrift that. But you also need to understand that there's another huge piece that isn't about crime. It's about public health. And that's the drug problem. And I think that if you combine those two and if more people talk about that, what's really hurtful to the Democrats are people who say, oh, just defund the police and don't explain that what they really mean is fund it in a way that's more comprehensive. I would love to see more dialogue around that. And that's what we should be doing. The crime issue is one of the, I don't know, I was about to say it's one of the least nuanced conversations that ever happens in Washington around policy, but there's so many unnuanced conversations that I don't know how to prioritize them. But this is obviously one of them. And I can remember, again, showing my age, that when that crime bill was passed in 1994, that in those midterm elections, Republicans made hay with uh, midnight basketball provisions. It was basically caricatured as a liberal too soft on crime, right? That was the, right. the midnight basketball was right. a, in congressional ads all during that midterm election where Republicans took control of the House for the first time in 40 years. They beat the living shit out of the Clinton administration and incumbent Democrats on having passed a kind of mamby-pamby crime bill. Yeah, 100,000 cops on the beat, but midnight basketball we're putting money into midnight basketball and now you know we look back on that and go yeah midnight basketball yeah it's a pretty good idea right this is part of trying to give kids in the need community something to do on a hot summer night rather than go get in trouble but i just i raised the point only because it's like the kinds of unhelpful caricatures that you were in the middle of in that debate in 1994 1995 and the fallout from that we're now 25 years later and we have a whole other set of unhelpful discussions around this, which include the one you just pointed to, I think, which is the defund the police discussion. And I think one of the problems is there aren't enough people who are like you who are, had the kind of prosecutorial record that you had and you actually had dealt with some of these issues at the ground level. Another problem we have in our politics, and, and I, I want to talk about this in the terms of your whole career, we now are finally getting to the point where we have kind of enough women. Maybe after many, many generations of not having nearly enough, we're starting to have a reasonable representation. But looking at your resume, I just think of all the things you did where you were the first woman this or the first woman that over the course of a career. You were in the state legislature. You were a county legislator. You were the state auditor. You ran for governor and, and didn't succeed. You ran for Senate and did succeed. But there's so many jobs that you had where you were the first woman this or the first woman that. And I guess my question about this is like, because you were a first in so many ways in those roles, how conscious were you about placing your gender and your identity as a woman in like, this is what I want to get done now. I got to the United States Senate. I'm a woman. I'm one of the few women who are up here. How much was that at the forefront of how you thought, this is how I want to spend my time. This is what I want to prioritize. These are the issues I want to care about. Or did you have the view that some women that I've known in politics, which is like, just treat me like everybody else. My gender is not going to be the thing that drives my policy interest. I'm interested in policies for a lot of reasons. It has nothing really to do with it. I'm curious how you weighed that out and decided 
how to place gender in how you expended your time on policy and how you crafted your image politically? Well, it's kind of complicated. I'm not proud of how often I sublimated my outrage about the way I'd been treated. I mean, I'll tell you one story because it was in my book, and this is an absolutely true story. I was a freshman legislator in the Missouri House of Representatives in my late 20s. I was single. And I went up on the dais to talk to the speaker to ask him advice about how I could get my first bill out of committee. And he looked over at me and he said, did you bring your knee pads? And obviously at that moment, I froze because it was a totally outrageous thing to say to me and hurtful and it upset me greatly. But of course, I laughed it off and walked away and got that bill out of committee and passed it. Now, those were the kinds of things I had to sublimate for many years of my career. And I'm proud of the women today that are coming forward because I don't think a Speaker of the House of Missouri would ever do that now. And that is progress. Having said that, I also didn't lead with my gender, but I did do things that I think would not have happened had I not been a woman. For example, when I got to be prosecutor in Kansas City, domestic violence was really never prosecuted. Assaults against someone that purported to love someone were never prosecuted. And so I said, we're going to start a domestic violence unit and we're going to train people and we're going to go after these guys. And of course, my top level male prosecutors said to me, well, many times we don't have a victim. And I said, well, let's shut down the homicide unit because the victim in homicide is dead. They can't testify. But we managed to put a case together with forensic evidence, with 911 calls, with eyewitnesses. So let's look at a domestic violence case just like looking at a homicide case. Assume the victim is going to be silent and let's go for it. Well, they fought me. The police department fought me, but we did it. I'm not sure... Um, I'd been on the board of a domestic violence shelter. I have a great deal of understanding about how difficult this problem is for many, many women in all walks of life. And so I'm not sure that would have ever happened had I been a man. So I'm very proud of that. And when I got to Washington, the reason I focused on sexual assault in the military is because I had experience there. I knew that system. I knew what should happen and why it should happen. So, you know, I had more ambition than was probably healthy in my career. <laughs> But I mention that because I want women to own it. I want women yeah. to own their ambition. I think they're afraid of it. I was on a panel, John, in New York with some people you would recognize, very, very high-profile women. Yeah. They were on right before me, and I was in the wings waiting to go on. These were people that get paid millions of dollars on television, and they were asked if they were ambitious. And you should have heard them him and haw. Well, of course they're ambitious. They wouldn't be sitting in that chair if they weren't ambitious. So I got out there and I kind of blew off my first line of my speech. And I said, I just want to start my remarks by saying I am really ambitious. Right. So I, I want women to quit acting like it's something they have to be ashamed of, that they're right. ambitious. So I'm sure that served me very well, my ambition. And I worked around the problems I had because I was a woman, but then I used my experience and things that I cared about because I was a woman to try to move the needle on issues that I think impact women more seriously than men. You raised one of them. This is one of the issues I wanted to talk about, which is the military sexual assault issue, right? You were someone who really took this issue on when you were in the Senate. 
there was just a big story in the New York Times magazine that re-raised the issue. The subhead to the story, I think, is the headline point. Nearly one in four U.S. service women reports being sexually assaulted in the military. One in four, okay? That's a fucking crazy number. And you have been in the middle of this fight for a long time. This is a subject that you can go very deep into the weeds on. Yes. But importantly, you tried to pass legislation. You got passed through the Senate in 2014, what would have been a potentially important set of reforms. There have been various reforms over the time that you were in the Senate. You proposed some more with Joni Ernst later in your Senate career. Kirsten Gillibrand was someone with whom you shared common goals, but differences on some key tactics, one of which was, should the military chain of command be involved in sexual assault matters? And her position for years has been, they have to be taken out because they pervert the process and they keep women from coming forward and they also don't refer cases and your position was contrary to that on the basis of what seems like maybe some lies that the military told at the time when a lot of this debate was taking place. So I'd like you to just talk about this issue because one in four is a horrific number and this problem is not going away. And there have been incremental reforms over time and you've been part of some of them. But where, what can be done about this now and what do you feel like you've learned about it? having been in the center of those battles for such a long time. Yeah, it's really hard for me because I think people assumed because I was for maintaining the chain of command in the cases that somehow I didn't care about this issue. And you can imagine how brutal that was for me personally because of the time I had spent in the trenches on this issue. Unlike any other senator, especially any other woman senator, I'm the only one who had held the hand of hundreds of victims, who had looked juries in the eye and tried to get them to hold terrible sexual offenders accountable. And so I looked at it by first learning the system, going to the Pentagon, sitting down with the lawyers, understanding how the UCMJ worked and how it didn't work. And then I looked at it, what would protect victims most? And I would argue with you that the changes we made were incremental. There's only one system in the country where every victim who wants it has their own lawyer. That's not true in the civil system. Victims of sexual assault don't have a lawyer. Right. The only thing they have is the prosecutor's office. There are so many other changes we made. The ultimate question where Kirsten and I splitted ways was would a victim be better protected? Because you couldn't find cases where the commander said, no, this case is not going forward. Couldn't find them. Once the system recommended a case go forward, commanders did not overrule that recommendation. So the problem was not that commanders weren't letting cases go forward. The problem was all kinds of other things down in the system. And if the commander said the case goes forward, that victim had a hell of a lot more protection than if some lawyer over in Fort Belvere, a half a world away, said the case is going to go forward. Everybody in the unit knew the commander said the case is going forward. And the problem for victims in the military is how their peers treat them, how their fellow soldiers treat them, how their sergeant they answer to treats them, not how the commander treats them. And all the surveys, I mean, I'm not aware of a survey that says the commander is the problem. So what I worried about is creating a system that was not responsive to victims where you had lawyers afar. And one thing about it is that our military justice system is deployable. Right. So if you have a barracks thief in Kabul or you have a sexual assault in South Korea, there are lawyers and victim advocates 
that are deployed and that are there and that can handle that. What Kirsten wants to do at the urging of some people that feel strongly about this is basically make the military justice system equivalent to our Article 10 courts. And that brings about a whole nother set of problems. And right. what the perspective I have that I think many people don't have is how women are treated in normal law enforcement circumstances. Mm -hmm. How victims, how much help do they get? How many of them come forward? How many of them feel like that the system is going to be fair to them? So this isn't a problem that is isolated in the military. Right. And I would make the argument that it is much more serious in local prosecutor's offices than it is in the military. I'm not saying that we don't still have a problem in the military, and maybe we should try this. I've never been like, oh, under no circumstances should we do it. Maybe we should try it. But I don't think the answer to this problem lies just with who ultimately makes the decision if the case goes forward. You and, and Senator Gillibrand shared a common set of goals, and this was just a question of how to get there the best way. Uh, and the only reason I used the word incremental was just to say that and this is not to mean that reforms, just as to say you know, the, the problem is still obviously vast. Whatever reforms have been put in place have not solved the problem. Now, that doesn't mean the reforms were bad. It just means that the problem is is bigger than that. You know, it's the case that, that the Gillibrand thing now has a lot of support, right? Lloyd Austin, President Biden, you kind of ended by saying you're not adamantly against it. I mean, how do you feel? Because she introduces this bill every year. The support for it has grown over time. And now, as I say, the military seems to now increasingly be, be getting behind, it. at least part of the military does, and the president is behind it. Where do you think that's going? Where is that going to lead? I think she'll pass it, and I think that's fine. And people have reached out to me to try to get me to weigh in, and I've demurred because I'm not a senator anymore. I'm not sure that what she's doing is any kind of silver bullet for the real problem that we have with sexual assault in this country or in the military. But it's fine if she passes it. You know, here's the problem, John. It's like everything else in politics. If you're faced with two things, one, should your boss decide whether or not one of your coworkers is prosecuted for rape versus, well, let me take you through the UCMJ and how it really works and it's deployable and, and then right. all the recommendations the commanders always fall. You know, it is a little bit like No Child Left Behind or mm -hmm. Obamacare. You know, Obamacare only became popular after it was in place long enough that people figured out there were things they really liked about it. Well, this is one of those nuanced issues that on its face, it is very hard not to be for what Kirsten Gillibrand says. Right. Because the whole idea of boss would decide who's prosecuted is ludicrous. Yeah. It's not that simple. But in politics, sometimes it gets boiled down to something very simple. And that's what wins the day. And I think Kirsten Gillibrand will win the day on this issue. And then we will see if that was, in fact, something that was going to make a big difference. I hope it will be. I mean, all I want is for women to be safe and to feel safe coming forward and hold these guys accountable for what they have done. I, I don't actually want to leave some of these issues related to women, but I do have to take a break. So we're going to take a break, a really quick one. I promise you, it's not going to go on for very long. We're going to take this very quick break here on Helen Highwater. We're going to come back on the other side. I can keep talking a little bit about some one, at least one more gender-related story with my friend, former Missouri Senator, MSNBC political commentator, Claire McCaskill here on Helen Highwater. We'll see you on the other side of these ads. And we're back for the third and final part of this episode of Hell and High Water. We're here with Claire McCaskill. And Claire, there's a bunch of stuff I want to try to get to in this last little chunk of time. But I can't, given what we were just talking about, I can't let Andrew Cuomo's resignation or announcement of his resignation go unremarked. So let's play a little bit of Andrew Cuomo last week 
announcing that he's bowing to reality uh, and going to leave the governor's office shortly. And then we'll talk about it with Claire McCaskill. I do hug and kiss people casually, women and men. I have done it all my life. It's who I've been since I can remember. In my mind, I've never crossed the line with anyone. But I didn't realize the extent to which the line has been redrawn. There are generational and cultural shifts that I just didn't fully appreciate. And I should have. No excuses. He says no excuses, but it all sounded like a giant excuse to me. Claire McCaskill, I want to know what you think about that, about generational differences and lines and whether Andrew Cuomo is right to be baffled. They keep moving that line. Uh, they keep moving the line around on him, apparently. I'm not sure you yeah. necessarily agree. Yeah, he's full of shit. The line hasn't moved. It's a matter of the power of the person who is doing the bad acting. Would one of my freshman legislators asked me if I brought my knee pads that day. No, I don't think so. But the Speaker of the House, did he ask me if I brought my knee pads that day when I was a legislator? Yes, he did. And the reason he thought he could do that is because he had the power to get away with it and that nothing would happen, that I would be too afraid to call him out and publicly tell people what he had said to me because of the power he had over me. And so for somebody who's had the power that Cuomo's had for as long as he had, he's just got it all wrong. The line hasn't changed. What has changed is that women are now coming forward like they didn't before. And the thing that's really bizarre about this is after all the, the Weinstein and the Cosby stuff, this incident, and this is where I tell people, read page 33 of the report. Go online, look for the Cuomo investigation from the attorney general's office. Go to page 33 and yeah. read what he did to the state trooper. And this was just a handful of years ago, like a couple of years ago. He's with her in an elevator and he runs his finger down her spine mm -hmm. and says, hey, uh, well, that's not hugging and kissing strangers. I mean, asking her why she doesn't wear a dress, asking her about whether or not women like pain when they have relationships with men. What is that? That is abusive. And he knows it. And the people who are defending him know it. And it is so outrageous to me that he went out that way. I mean, if he hadn't gone out that way, if he just said, man, I am really sorry, I really screwed up and I am leaving because I did something that no one should do then, you know, maybe you could have a comeback. But I think there are a lot of women around the country that will do everything in their power to make sure he never has a comeback because of the way he went out. I think you are 100% right. And I don't think he knows that yet. Everything about that press conference said to me that there's still a glint in that man's eye. He thinks there's some way he can make a comeback. And I just don't, I, I just don't see it uh, given the circumstances. I, I want to I shift and just talk a little bit about your state. Uh, you said at the very beginning that the state of Missouri sucked. And I'm curious about what you meant by that, number one. And then I want to talk to you about two political figures in your state, because I always find Missouri super interesting, right? It's a, a state, as you pointed out before, people think of it as now as a red, red state. Not that long ago, it was very much a purple state. And people thought of it that way as kind of an archetypal purple state. And that Democrats won. You won statewide. You said Jay Nixon was a two-term governor, I believe, Correct. not that long ago in the state 
of Missouri. And, and obviously, there are famous Democrats who represented the state over many years at the governor's level in the Senate. So first, why do things suck in Missouri? Well, uh, I think, first of all, there has been a shift. There were a lot of rural Democrats when I was in the Missouri legislature in the 80s, a lot of rural Democrats. They were anti-choice. They probably, if we'd voted on guns, would have voted for more guns everywhere. But they were Democrats. And the local office holders were all Democrats. Historically, many parts, especially the Boot Heel and some parts of northern Missouri, were very Democratic. And then we had the culture wars. The culture wars have wreaked havoc on the Democratic Party in Missouri. Whether it was Mel Carnahan's brave and principled stand against carrying concealed weapons, or whether it was his brave and principled stand on behalf of women's reproductive freedom, whether it was what was going on nationally that got pulled down to make elections more and more national in Missouri. But the culture wars are what converted a huge number of Democrats to Republicans in my state. And then the whipped cream and the cherry, the steroids that fueled an unprecedented support for the Republicans was none other than Donald J. Trump. Right. He said things that many of them think. He said things that many people in rural Missouri who had never voted all of a sudden said, that's my guy. He was politically incorrect to the point of being obnoxious and offensive, and they loved it. It was gasoline on a smoldering fire, and it became an inferno, and it became unstoppable. And now, all the Democrats who won statewide, I am not aware of any of them that you couldn't couch as progressives, but they led with an air which was genuine and legit with me and Jay and Chris Coster and Mel Carnahan and Bob Holden and Tom Eagleton. He led with an air of, I'm about Missouri, I'm about finding the middle, I'm about finding compromise, I'm about making things better for you. I'm not about swinging for the fences with some very, very liberal positions. And that always worked. We'd win the Democratic areas by big margins, and we'd cut the margins in red parts of our state enough that that was enough to get across the finish line. The margins got too big in rural Missouri, even though I did better with bigger margins and bigger turnout in the blue parts than any Democrat had ever done, including presidential candidates in the blue parts of my state. But there was a really unbelievable swing in the margins. I mean, there were some counties, I did much better than Hillary Clinton did in rural Missouri, but that's yeah. not saying much. I mean, there right. were many counties that I didn't get 20% of the vote. So we have a real disconnect in our state between the rural and the urban. Yeah. And we have a real disconnect now between balance of power. This state is run by Republicans, and they think the more Trumpian they can be, the more success they will have winning primaries, and therefore they can be congressmen or senators or governors. So it is a race to the right, right. in my state. And in ways that Kansas City and St. Louis are reeling, with yeah. the reality that the state has gone so far off the rails in terms of any kind of moderation. Let's talk about that in the case of these two politicians I want to get your views on, because one of them in many ways uh, representative of the new Trump generation, and that's the guy who beat you in 2018, Josh Hawley. And obviously on the right, there was a sense that Hawley was a rising star. Before he ran against you, he then won that race. And as you painfully remember, it wasn't as close as many thought it was going to be. 
And then he was fashioning himself in the way that he was fashioning himself. And then we had January 6th and the photo of him with the clenched fists and the arm in the air. And then his unapologetic votes to decertify the election and so on. Everything that was part of that, him buying into the big lie, propagating the big lie, being seen as in some way, at least spiritually complicit with what happened that day. And then standing up afterwards and saying, I'm not sorry. I'd do it all over again if, if I had a chance. What's one to make of Josh Hawley? And I mean, there are many people who look at him and say, in the end, he's a clown and he's not, even in Republican circles, not going very far. Other people still consider him kind of a bright, hot rising star on the right. What's your view about his future and what his prominence means, what it says about the Republican Party in 2021? I don't know if Josh Hawley can be defeated in Missouri, but I do think January 6th produced one very tiny silver lining. I don't think Josh Hawley can ever be president. And that's a good thing for our country. Why do you think he can't be elected president? Because I think I think it's gone into the hard drive of the majority of the country that this is somebody who is Donald Trump with a little smoother uh, surface. I think he will say and do anything to get himself to a position of political prominence, literally say and do anything to get himself to a position of political prominence. And I think for most Americans, that is a little off-putting, especially when his views are so extreme on so many things. So I do think the fist and everything that happened, and, and people who are insiders, John, know this. I mean, he does get a lot of the responsibility for January 6th. Because Mitch McConnell had everybody in line not to do sure. this. Yes. He yeah. had conference call after conference call. Evidently, Hawley was on some of those conference calls and didn't say anything. And then without giving anybody a heads up, went out and decided, OK, this is how I'm going to become president. I will be the one to do this. And then, of course, all the other cowards fell in behind him once he right. did it. But I'm not sure if Josh Hawley hadn't decided to split from Mitch McConnell's leadership at that moment. Now, he would wear that and he does wear it like a badge of honor. Like, right. I'm the one who's, you know, Mitch McConnell's the swamp and I'm going after the swamp and I'm here for you. But that's a pretty small portion of the electorate he's speaking to. I mean, what is it, 25, maybe 30 yeah. percent? It's max. You don't get elected with 25 or 35 percent of the electorate. You have to get close to 50, <laughs> depending on who else yeah. is in the race. So I don't think he'll be president. I think he is dangerous. And listen, I, earlier in this program, I said ambition is good. Um, <laughs> I do think that there's nothing wrong with ambition. His has been breathtaking, even though he promised he wouldn't use one office to run for another. He's never been in an office longer than 10 minutes when he wasn't running for the next one. Right. I mean, I at least hung around my offices and did the job for a while, the ones I was in and before I ran for higher office. And besides that, he's you know, I, I hate to say this, but personality matters. Yeah. You know, you got to be warm. Yeah. Joe Biden was chicken soup for this country because you got his empathy. You got that he really cared about people. Josh is pretty stiff. And I don't think he makes friends. It doesn't appear to me he's making very many friends in right. the Senate on yeah. either side of the aisle. And that's not a good sign for somebody who wants to lead the country. He looks like he's kind of on a fast track to end up where Ted Cruz is, which is sort of not where anybody wants to live. I mean, in the sense of being someone who's not, I'll say mildly, is not a beloved figure, even among his ideological allies. I want to ask you about this other politician in Missouri, though. You said there was a split in the state. Hawley obviously represents, you know, the white and rural and conservative part of Missouri. But there's another politician who represents now the urban core of St. Louis in particular. That's Cory Bush, who's gotten a lot of attention of late, some good, some bad. 
I want to play one last piece of sound. I get you to talk about Cori Bush a little bit. So let's play Cori Bush and we'll talk about her on the other side. They would rather I die. You would rather me die. Is that what you want to see? You want to see me die? You know, because that could be the alternative. So either I spend $70,000 on private security over the last few months and I'm here standing here standing now and able to speak, able to help save 11 million people from being evicted or I could possibly have a death attempt on my life. So if I end up spending 200,000, if I spend 10, 10, 10 more dollars on it, you know what? I get to be here to do the work. So suck it up and defunding the police has to happen. We need to defund the police and put that money into social safety nets because we're trying to save lives. So freshman Congresswoman, newest member of the squad, that was her answering the question that she was asked. You are getting criticism for spending $70,000 on private security while you talk about defunding the police. Is that not hypocritical? And she responds by saying what she said there. She has gotten praise for sleeping on the Capitol steps and bringing about the revival of this eviction moratorium. She's in the crosshairs, the rhetorical crosshairs, let's be clear, of every Jewish group in the country because she has said some things recently, very anti-Israel, very pro-Palestinian, and has made some comments that some people could kind of interpret as if to say that like, Somehow the Jews are responsible for poverty in St. Louis. I mean, very controversial. She's not been there very long. Hero to some, villain to others. I want to get your read on Cori Bush and her assets, her liabilities, and her and her prospects. Well, first of all, I admire her in many ways because she beat Lacey Clay because she really, really worked hard. And I love people who work hard. She comes from an organizing place. She is close to the people in her district that have not had a voice And I think that is all marvelous. I will say this. I think she will probably stay in Congress for as long as she wants to, because I think the Republicans will draw her district safely. They will take Republicans out of her district and put them in Ann Wagner's district, which is a suburban district in St. Louis. And they will put any Democrats that are in Ann Wagner's district in Cori Bush's district. Because they want her to be around. They, I'm not saying me, I'm saying they see her as ineffective and helpful to their cause. Now, having said all that, I think Corey can do some good work for the people she represents, and I hope she does. But for all the progressives in my state that say, oh, Claire, if you just would have been more liberal, you would have won. I have one question. Will Corey Bush file for the Senate? If, in fact, she does not file for the Senate, what does that tell you about what this state is versus what Corey's district is? They are light years away from each other in terms of the state as a whole and Corey's district. And by the way, many of the positions Corey has, I agree with. Some I don't. But many of them I agree with and voted for. So it's not like she and I are totally different in terms of what we believe in. We're not. And, you know, but I admire her passion and I admire that she is not afraid to say what she thinks, even if it's things I disagree with. So uh, all in all, I think she is good for her district and probably all in all good for our country and good for our party in that she says things and pushes things that we probably need to hear. But whether or not she's going to be effective at moving the needle, I think that remains to be seen. It must make you crazy because obviously after you lost in 2018 among progressives who don't really seem to understand how politics works. I'm not saying all progressives don't understand how politics works. Among some progressives don't really understand. You would often hear, if only Claire McCaskill had run more like Cori Bush, if Cori Bush can get elected to Congress in Missouri, 
<laughs> they would say. The only reason Claire McCaskill couldn't win was because she played it safe and she was too moderate. And if she'd just been as outspoken and as progressive as Cori Bush, she would have easily beat Josh Hawley. And you're like, A, it must make you crazy to hear it. For yeah, they've of- never been to Pettis County. Yeah. <laughs> I spent a lot of time all over this state. And it's a complicated state, but it's not as simple as having just one note political views on things. It, it, it is like politics and the issues around public policy. It's more nuanced than that. I remember you sponsored an Israel anti-boycott act, right, when you were in the Senate. And I just, when I heard her the other day saying something, she's been in trouble twice now, I think, over some comments about Israel. And given some of your positions on Israel, I can't also imagine that you don't cringe a little bit when you hear some of the things that come out of her mouth on that topic. Yes. Yes. And listen, my position on Israel is very clear. It is the only true democracy in a very dangerous neighborhood, and we need to hold on to their support and that alliance no matter what. I'm going to ask you these two last things. Obviously, you've made it clear you're not going to run for Senate in 2022. Roy Blunt's not running. There's an open Senate seat in the state of Missouri. And Democrats are kind of freaking out because Jay Nixon, another person we mentioned earlier, former two-term governor of the state, decided also not to run. So the two potentially strongest candidates for that seat are not running. And there's a shit show going on on the right where you could end up with someone who's beatable. And you've been in that seat in that you've had that experience too with Todd Aiken, where you have a beatable Republican. Why not run again? Oh, because I have no desire. Listen, I am so happy. I feel guilty. I had no idea somebody would pay me real money just to talk about politics. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like ridiculous. I control my own schedule, yeah. which I'd not done for 40 years. Yeah. I had no idea how hard I was working. And by the way, when you said earlier they left on vacation, I never had a vacation in August. What I did in August was get around to 114 counties as much as I could. I mean, so unfair to people in Congress to say that when they're not in session in Washington, they got their feet up because there's a lot of work, especially if you're from a hard state. The people from hard states are out there working all August long, especially those that have an election next year. So I will never run for office again, ever ever, ever. Now, having said that, stay tuned in Missouri. I think we could have a surprise. I think we could have a candidate who has no political experience, but has a great resume, has money, is not from one of the bright blue areas. I think you could have somebody who could splash on the scene, much like Greitens, who I think could win the Republican primary. And just to remind everyone that Eric Greitens was the governor that we discovered had taped up a woman he was having an affair with, with duct tape to his gym equipment in his basement, ripped open her T-shirt and spit water into her mouth, threatening to take pictures. I mean, this is the kind of guy we're talking about. The Republicans ran him out of office. But he's being very Trump. When true, they did this to me and it's working and he's winning in the polls right now and they got a lot of candidates running and he could easily win. So we may have exactly what the doctor ordered in terms of a candidate, somebody who's never been in politics before, who doesn't have a voting history, who has presence and a network and the ability to get it done. I'm going to remain cautiously optimistic. Sounds like you're thinking about somebody in particular. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm obviously my phone rings a lot with people who are interested and people who are running. And there's two candidates who have declared that are good candidates, too. So I just think they've gone so far in Missouri. We are one of the top covid states. We have done everything. I mean, during the height of covid, this is how bad it is. You know what the Missouri legislature did, John, during the height of covid? They legalized brass knuckles. (laughs) 
You can't make this shit up. You just can't make it up. This is what these morons in Jefferson City thought was important in the middle of COVID is making sure we could all have brass knuckles. It's crazy town. I mean, look, the only thing that keeps me from having brass knuckles on all the time is that I'm always afraid that I'll get picked up in a state where brass knuckles are illegal. So I'm, yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate the effort on the Come part. Come to Missouri. So Your so brass feel, knuckles are welcome in Missouri, John. I feel, perfectly, <laughs> I feel perfectly comfortable. I show up there. I got to say, Eric Greitens, I'm glad you did what you did just there, which was to run through just what a horrific, the Eric Greitens story is really incredibly fucked up. And the fact that he may very well be the Republican nominee after all the things you just said is amazing, appalling, but also wonderful if you're a Democrat and you think there's an opportunity, golden opportunity. The only person who makes like Todd Akin, a man you're familiar with, makes Todd Akin look perfectly sensible is Eric Greitens. So uh, we'll see what happens. Claire, thank you for taking the time. The only last thing I really want to know is how you're feeling about your Cardinals who are in third place right now. Claire and I went to a, have gone to a baseball game together. I went out to St. Louis a few years Came ago. Came for opening day. For opening day with my friend Mike Barnacle and the rest of the Morning Joe crew. And we hung out. We were on the field together. And I, it was the first time I'd been to that stadium. And I got to say, I mean, I hate the Cardinals. I mean, I hate them, right? And Everybody uh, does because we win. I'm a, a long-term Dodgers Red Sox fan. And I hate the Cardinals. But obviously, they're one of the great franchises in the history of sports in any sport. And the fans in St. Louis are as knowledgeable a group about baseball fans as exist in the world. And you sit in the stands and you listen to the people around you and you're like, these people actually know what they're talking about. I will also say that the food portions at that stadium are excessive. There's no reason why you should be given, <laughs> like a, for $3, a 47-pound bag of French fries. But how bummed are you that you're not really in the playoff hunt right now? Well, we still have a lot of games against Milwaukee, just, just so you know. I yeah. mean, if we go on a hot streak, and by the way, Flaherty's back. Our ace is now back. We've had a lot of problems with our injuries in terms of our pitching staff. Nobody in St. Louis gives up. And we are very spoiled in St. Louis because we almost always have baseball in October. And most franchises can't say that. We are second in World Series championships only behind the New York Yankees who spend uh, a Midas gold fortune compared to what this lowly little market has to spend. So I am very proud of the Cardinals, but it has been a difficult year. I got to say, though, let me just say this for all the old people out there. If you haven't paid attention to Adam Wainwright this year, And what he's done. He pitched nine innings the other night, John, with Yachty behind the plate. You know, I think he's 39. I mean, it is remarkable the command he has in an era where everybody says you have to throw 104 miles an hour and all of that. It is really fun for a Cardinal fan to watch Adam Rainwright do what he's doing this year. Uh, He's such a good guy, and so is Yachty. To have those two guys on the team this year, even if we're not in first place, it's still great fun for all of us in Cardinals Nation. Well, especially those of us who are senior citizens, you know, who like look at their life. Exactly, Because those guys guys (laughs) are getting it done long after they're supposed to get it done. I remember hearing Charles Barkley at some point say a thing that I'd never thought of before as Charles Barkley occasionally does, he was doing analysis around a Super Bowl one year, and he was making the point that the way to judge sports franchises was at the beginning of the year, was the franchise in position to win a championship or not? Because you couldn't control what happens after the season starts because of injuries and other things, right? And so the way to evaluate the quality of a franchise was how frequently, how consistently were they a potential championship team on day one of the season? Not how many they won in the end, but how many in that situation. He said on this show, I must have been around Super Bowl because he was talking about how the Patriots had to be considered one of the great franchises for that very reason. And then he went on to say that the other great franchise in all of sports 
in this regard was the Cardinals, that if you look back over the years, that they were a team that almost every year on day one of the season, they were in a position where they could be a World Series champion. And I thought that was super smart. And you know, the Yankees even are not quite in that category, although they are obviously the other contender in baseball where they often have a World Series caliber team on day one. But I thought that was smart. And it's incredible that it's a small market team, which actually makes it more remarkable that the team is often in, in that position, that they do it not on the back of a payroll that looks like the Yankees payroll, the Red Sox payroll. You guys are lucky to have them, even though I Hey, listen, I did not know that, but I will tell you this is another proof point that if I weren't madly in love with my husband, I would run off with Charles Barkley. Um <laughs> You guys are an incredible couple. Oh, my God. He's so funny and so smart. Yeah. And yeah. obviously, he's a genius because he's figured out the Cardinals have one of the best organizations in sports. Like I say, you guys are lucky to have him. And we are lucky to have had you here today on Hell and High Water. My friend, Thank Carmen you. Caskell. Thanks. Thanks, thanks for hanging out today. You bet. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Claire McCaskill for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Jessica Williams checks the facts. Stephanie Tender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 